0: Well, this morning we're going to be continuing the message from last week uh, concerning removing sin from the local church. And uh, today we're going to be focusing on the second part of that long and extended passage uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 6 through 13. So if you'd like to stand for the reading of God's Word, I'll go ahead and read the passage from last week as well because these are all combined and they're, they're intertwined. Paul writes in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, in verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such, such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you were puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I, indeed, as absent in the body but present in the spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, With the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan. For the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the malice, the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle, not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous Or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner not even to eat with such a person for what have I to do with judging those also who are outside do you not judge those who are inside but those who are outside God judges therefore put away from yourselves the evil person. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the riches of your word, and Lord, even for these uh, sad and uncomfortable passages that you have provided in order to equip your people for works of service, to participate faithfully in the body of Christ in a local church. Lord, help us to get into our minds and hearts what the Apostle Paul had in his mind and his heart when he wrote these things. May we go no farther than what Paul intended, and yet, Lord, may we go as far as he intended in this important area of the church's life. We give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, as a brief review of last week, just hitting the high points here, Paul is taking up the issue of sin in the young church in Corinth. We saw that whenever we separate the pleasures that God has created from his purposes for those pleasures, we become sinful thrill-seekers, those who are wanting more, than what God intended out of these blessings and these pleasures, and therefore failing to fulfill the purpose for which he provides them. We saw that keeping sexual activity inside of marriage, in what God's word calls the marriage bed, is God's way of avoiding this kind of sin. And we saw that Paul was ready to lead the church in doing the right thing in this particular case we also saw how the process of disfellowshipping a member a fellow member uh, was laid out by paul that this is a disfellowshipping not a not a uh, excommunication okay excommunication the word itself comes from the catholic understanding of the lord's supper as a sacrament and such an important sacrament that if you were excommunicated in other words, rejected from participation in the communion service, that you would lose your salvation. And so we see that what Paul is describing here is not excommunication, but rather disfellowship. He's requiring the entire church to participate in backing away from fellowship with this one who is living in open sin. Now, finally, we saw that the Corinthian church's response to this sin was not adequate. And so Paul is now leading them in the the adequate response. And so today we're going to look at what that response should be and, uh, and why it should be. So, Paul is continuing to address this issue of sin in the young church in Corinth. And as we have read in Chapter 5 and verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Now this is an outrageous sin, even among the pagans, which must be confronted. But now Paul is going to take up the reason why. This sin must be confronted, and to do so, he reaches back into the Old Testament to bring clarity to his point. He uses an Old Testament analogy of leaven—that's yeast for those of you who are not familiar with baking. Okay, this is yeast in a lump of dough, and he's going to use this to illustrate the danger of, allow, of allowing sin to continue in a local church without being confronted. In 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 6b, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, uh, I'm not a baker, but I live with one. <laughs> and she has explained to me how uh, leavening, uh, yeast, uh, baking soda, other th- things, allow the dough to become very light and fluffy, full of little bubbles, right? And it rises up, and it smells wonderful. And then when it's put into the oven and it's baked, you end up with a, a wonderful texture and flavor. Uh, and that, that bread is entirely enjoyable. Now, unleavened bread, on the other hand, is not as enjoyable, Okay. Uh, it is uh, often in a form of what's called matzah, uh, which is a very thin, kind of like a saltine cracker, only without the salt. Isn't that great? No salt on your cracker. Uh, but it is, uh, it is unleavened. It doesn't rise. It's, it's very thin and brittle. And it is, uh, it is that way for a reason, as we're going to see. The leaven, when it is in the dough will slowly but surely make its way through the entire lump of dough. It, it multiplies in the dough. It reproduces the yeast cells in the dough until it is all completely leavened. And so Paul uses this as a way of explaining why it's so important to deal with sin in the church. He says, therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, a fresh lump, of dough, since you truly are unleavened." Now, he's speaking to a Gentile church, okay? So this tells us that Paul must have instructed these people in the the foundational doctrines that are found in the Old Testament in order to illustrate the relationships that they have now as Christians in the New Testament era. And so he says, "'For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us and as we're going to see this all ties together in a beautiful picture therefore let us keep the feast not with the old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth so what we have in this passage just as a preview is that our justification before God came by Christ's death as our Passover lamb. When Jesus died on the cross he fulfilled what John the Baptist said when he said behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus fulfilled the type the shadow that the Passover lamb was uh, to the Jews. Then our sanctification progresses by the feast of unleavened bread and that's what Paul's dealing with here he's saying you have been saved by that passover lamb and now it's necessary that you keep the feast of unleavened bread okay so if you're not from a jewish background this is not going to mean a whole lot to you so we're going to take some time to unpack The only way to deal with the old leaven is to remove it. That's Paul's point. The only way to deal with this type of sin in the church is to remove it. Paul is referring to how the children of Israel were brought out of Egypt. And so, in Exodus chapter 11, and verse 4, we read, Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the animals so this is the judgment the last of the 10 judgments of God upon Egypt is this Uh, slaying of the firstborn in every household. Pharaoh has hardened his heart against God. He has refused to allow the children of Israel to leave Egypt and go out into the wilderness to worship God freely and so now God is going to administer the final uh, plague which is the death of the firstborn of everyone in Egypt. Okay now There is a way now provided for all of the Israelites to avoid this last plague and its impact, to not have their own firstborn children die in this last judgment of God. And so we read in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 3, Speak to the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. So here's what's going on. And I want all the kids to listen up as I explain this. God is saying that he wants every household, every family to, have, to go out and take a, a lamb, a, a little baby sheep, and he wants them to have that lamb, and they're going to have that lamb as a, as a meal. They're going to they're cook it. They're going to eat it, okay? Now this lamb may be too much for some families because it's just maybe a mom and dad or maybe just somebody living alone. So they are then to go over to their neighbor and say, my house is too small to eat a whole lamb because it was required that they eat the whole lamb before they leave. And so they had to make sure they had enough people to do that. So they go over to the next door and they join family to family and they have this lamb and there were other alternatives as well. But the main thing is the lamb. Okay, this is important because remember Jesus later He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the whole world. This Lamb is only going to take the sin of the Jewish people away for one year. It has to be repeated every year. This is the feast of the Passover. Now, the Passover festival included a seven-day feast of unleavened bread. And we see that in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 5. So we read, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. So it's not a baby lamb, it's a year old lamb. It's in its prime at that point. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the lentil and on the lentil of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh of that night, on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So what's going on here? You see, when the Jewish people who were enslaved in Egypt were going to be set free by God, he said, you're going to have this Passover feast. You're going to have a lamb. You're going to roast it you're gonna have lamb chops okay you're gonna eat the whole lamb but while you're eating that lamb you're also going to be eating unleavened bread that's that cracker like bread that has not risen has no yeast in it no leaven in it and you're to eat notice it says with your belt on your waist your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand and you're to eat it fast you're to eat it in haste why? because you could be called at any moment to take off and leave the land of Egypt. The whole point of this is Pharaoh is going to find himself facing such a horrible final plague that he's going to say, get out of here, leave. And so you gotta be ready, you gotta be ready to go. And so they're eating this feast of the Passover lamb with their clothes, you know, all on, they're ready to walk out the door. They got their shoes on, they got their staff in their hand, and everybody's eating with the expectation that at any moment the, the signal will come and we'll be marching out of, e, out of Egypt, out of slavery and into freedom and into the, into the uh, place where we will worship God without any hindrance from Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So this was a feast of bread that was baked in haste without leaven. And that's why it's unleavened. They were, the, the, the picture is there's no time to let the bread rise. Okay, so you, you bake it before you even add the yeast. You bake it as bread made in haste and then eaten in haste as Israel had to flee from their bondage. In Egypt when the, when the signal came. Now let me give you a little background about these feasts. Because this, I mean let's be honest, this can get complicated if you didn't grow up in it. If you didn't grow up with all this, it could get a little bit complicated. So let's take a look at some background info. The Feast of Unleavened Bread begins with the Passover meal. The first place where the unleavened bread shows up is while you're eating the lamb itself. Okay? And it's always on the evening of the 15th of Nisan, which is the Jewish calendar. And it's going to last for seven days. This is a seven-day feast. The first day of it is the Passover feast, and the other six days are the Feasts of Unleavened Bread, with all kinds of rituals and things that go with that. Now, together, these two feasts commemorate Israel's liberation from slavery. In Egypt. The very word Passover refers to Israel's uh, the angel of death passing over the Hebrew homes when God was in the act of killing the firstborn of all the Egyptians. So this angel of death is is kind of flying over Egypt here and everywhere that he goes the firstborn in that house will die. Unless the angel sees the blood of that lamb on the doorposts on each side and on the lintel at the top. Now, I want you to imagine you're out there putting the blood on the doorposts. And you put a dab here, and you go over here and you put a dab there, and you bring your brush up and you put a dab here. And so now what you've got, what do you have? You've got a cross. The first semblance of the cross shows up in the Passover, where God says, I want you to put blood on the doorposts of your house. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. So, unleavened bread is a reminder of the haste with which the Hebrews had to leave Egypt. And it became, over time, a symbol of the removal of sin from one's life because you were required by God to remove all leaven from your house you were to clean house okay now if you know anything about yeast there is yeast in the air all the time you can put a lump of dough on the countertop in your kitchen and just leave it there and there's enough yeast just in the air that it will eventually find its way to that lump of dough and begin to permeate it just as if you had added the yeast yourself. It's like the yeast is everywhere. And so the leaven the dough becomes leaven just by being left out and exposed to the air. And so they were required not just to not put leaven in the dough but to remove all leaven from the house. Okay? Now, this is all intended to provide a picture for us of a spiritual reality. As Paul writes, these things were written for our learning upon whom the ends of the age have come. And so the Passover was fulfilled by Christ as the Lamb of God, whose blood was shed to allow all of us who trust in him to be passed over by God's judgment and set free from the bondage of our bondage to sin and death. But it's important to remember, especially for Paul's point here today, he's dealing with sin in the church. It's important that after Passover, you must clean house. Okay? You must remove all leaven from the house. And we see this in Exodus 12, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so here we have the Lamb. And there you can see the blood on the doorposts on the sides of the door and on the lentil above the door. And there we have the outline of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we continue in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Now, Paul is using this well-known story of the liberation of the Jews from Egypt and the Passover feast followed immediately with the cleaning house of all leaven to make his point that the sin must be removed, the sinner must be removed from the church and from his fellowship. The blood of Christ allows God's judgment to pass over us, but then we must be quick to purge out the leaven of sinful behavior in order to remain in fellowship with one another. What happens to the one who eats leavened bread during those seven days? He's cut off from Israel. The fellowship is lost. It's broken. And in the same way, when someone continues in sin, even though they have partaken of the blood of the Lamb, they are saved... They have been rescued from sin and death by the blood of Jesus Christ. Even then, as a believer, if it is discovered that they have not removed the leaven of sin from their life, that they have not, that they've, they've continued in sin after being saved, the church's response is to disfellowship them. That's the point that Paul is making in this passage. And so in this we can see how Paul intends to deal with the sinner in Christ's church there in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. How are you unleavened? You have been covered by the blood of Christ. God has passed over you. You are saved. For indeed Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. What feast? The feast of unleavened bread. Let us keep, you know, Christ has died for you. He's, you're forgiven. You are eternally saved. Now begin living like what you are, a child of God. You cannot continue in sin And also remain in fellowship. That's the point. You can't continue to be living in sin and still be a part of the fellowship of God's people. There has to be a cutting off of that one who has violated uh, this principle. So the disfellowshipping of an unrepentant Christian who is living in sin is like the cutting off of a Hebrew who eats unleavened or eats leavened bread during the feast of unleavened bread okay so paul 's mind in Paul's mind these two situations are very much alike and that 's why he uses it to make his point that the the believer in the Corinthian church who is living in sin must be confronted. Okay? So house cleaning is a team sport. You know, we are not just called to do this as individuals, but as members of one another in Christ's church. So notice what Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and, and in verse 20. But in a great house There are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, from the dishonor, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified. That means set apart and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, notice this, with those who call upon the Lord out of a pure heart. This kind of progressive sanctification, this uh, fleeing youthful lusts and pursuing righteousness is something that we do with one another. Okay? A lot of people wonder why do I need to go to church I can live without that we talked to somebody just recently who was saying I don't need to go to church you know I'm I'm a Christian I love God I know he loves me I don't need to go to church the reason you need to go to church is first of all God commands it don't forsake the fellowshipping of yourselves with one another as is the manner of some so evidently people were skipping church in the first century before there even was the game of golf okay? They were skipping church. Now, if you understand what Paul's saying here, you realize that not only do you need others in order to clean house and keep it clean, others also need you in order to clean house and keep it clean. And so, we are to stick together. And, and I think this is intended to be more than just seeing one another on a Sunday morning. I don't, I don't mean to clutter your life. I'm not wanting to make your life crazy. But you know, we should be seeing one another in what you would call informal fellowship. It's great to be with one another on a Wednesday night to pray together. That's a, that's a formal gathering on Wednesday nights. Normally it's at, at Brian's place, sometimes at Terry's. But it's a time where we get together and we pray together and we sing, worship together. And then we just spend time talking with one another and eating cookies and things like that. That's good. But it's also good for us to get together with one another uh, in our homes or in other places where we arrange to meet. You know, it might be a park. It, it might be a camping out together, It you know. Come up with ideas of ways to include somebody in something you enjoy doing. And, and look a- across the congregation and say, who do I need to get to know? Because there's a lot of people here, I don't really know them very well. And so that's why this cleaning house, being progressively sanctified, keeping sin out of our lives, it's all done so much more easily and effectively if we treat it as a team sport. It's something we do together. It's something that we live life together. And so uh, in, in this church, in Gracious Cross, Redeemed, uh, Reformed, <laughs> Redeemed and Reformed. And yeah, we're all these things. Gracious Cross, Reformed Church. We, we believe that the ministry of the church is the body life of the church. And that the ministry of the elders is to keep the body life healthy and strong. That's why we preach the word. That's why we host with hospitality. That's why we pray for you, not only after the services, but throughout the week. The point is that this is not a church where the staff is doing all the heavy lifting and the congregation is just passively receiving that, but rather where the congregation of the church, the body of the church, is loving one another and serving one another in this way. All right. A little sound backing me up there. Now in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 15 we read, you shall remove leaven from your houses for whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So both fellowship and disfellowship can only be effective if fellow believers value their fellowship with one another. They have to value it enough to miss it if it's taken away. You know, I, I've been in churches where they've attempted to discipline somebody and they couldn't care less. <laughs> they, just, they didn't love the church, they didn't need the church from their own mindset. Um, And so when you try to discipline, then just kind of shrug it off and say, okay, whatever. And they just go down the street, find some other church where they're unknown and uh, fit right in, continuing in their sin. You know, this is the kind of problem we have uh, when, when people don't value their own membership within the body of Christ. It's not a big deal if you didn't care in the first place. If you, didn't, if you weren't involved in one another's life in the first place, withdrawing that fellowship, you won't even notice. And so Paul expects the fellowship of the church to be strong and lively enough to where if it's threatened to be withdrawn, it can bring repentance. Now Paul had to clarify what he meant in a previous letter about this issue of disfellowship. He says in 1 Corinthians 5.9, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, as people outside the church, or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Where, where could you go to get away from the sin that is in the world. It's like the leaven that's in the air, the yeast that's in the air. You can't get away from it. So he's adding additional sins here to the sin of sexual immorality that would warrant a disfellowshipping of a fellow member if they were uh, participating in these sins in a way that brought a reproach upon the name of christ he said he adds covetousness which is uh, wanting what is not rightfully yours in, in a, such a uh, obsessive way that it it leads you to other sins like stealing you know that type of thing extortioners people who will use what they know about somebody to influence them to do what they want if you don't do that's then I'm going to let everybody know what I know about you. That's extortion. Idolaters. Idolaters are those who put anything above God and and have something that is more important to them than God Himself. That, That is an idolatrous heart. And it may show up in any number of different ways, but it is always the same problem. You put something in this world above God as your most uh, important value and so he lists these gross sins that are not to be tolerated in the church and then he makes it clear that he is not referring to judging sins in the world outside the church that is left up to god and god is doing that constantly as we read in romans chapter 1 that the wrath of god is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness So it's not like everybody's going to have to wait until the great day of judgment to be judged. They're being judged right now by the consequences in their minds and the consequences in their physical bodies. God is dealing with with people outside the church in that way. Now, like a body with a strong immune system, we can live in the midst of many, many different kinds of germs without succumbing to the disease. Now well, this is a kind of a simplistic uh, idea, but discipline is applied only to fellow believers and not to outside unbelievers. So Paul writes, but now I'm writing to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a drunkard, not even to eat with such a person. Okay, so the difference is you don't judge the world, God will deal with them. But people who are within the body of the church, they must be confronted if it becomes known to you that they're involved in these kinds of gross sins. So Paul adds to this list revilers and drunkards. Now, I think that uh, a biblical position on the issue of uh, alcohol is not necessarily to be a teetotaler or you know a a just total abstinence that's fine if, if you feel that that's the best way to approach it and I would never argue with that but the Bible itself tells us that wine is given to us in order to make our hearts rejoice that there's a place for this in celebration normally break this out when there's some kind of party going on but it's not intended to bring drunkenness which is to allow that alcohol to so uh, influence your mind that you begin to sin in various ways. So drunkenness is a sin, and it's a sin that leads to other sins. And a lot of people's lives have been ruined by a drunkard who, in his drunken state, uh, begins abusing his wife physically or hitting his kids or doing whatever, throwing things, you know, that kind of behavior is sin, and it's traced to the sin of getting drunk, okay? So you've been warned. Drunkenness is, a, to be, is one of the sins to be confronted within the local church. But also revilers. What's a reviler? A reviler is somebody who is just in a constant state of criticism and a kind of a mocking criticism of others. Someone who's creating division, usually revilers are, are aiming their, their, uh, their venom uh, at leaders within the church. You know, I revile you, you know, I'm not going to listen to you, I think you're an idiot or whatever. And those kind of people affect other people around them and that, that behavior is also to be confronted by the church as a body. So, This is for those who identify themselves as Christians. He says, do not even eat with such a person. So this is where the, if you're not eating with one another already, you're not going to miss it if people stop eating with you, right? (laughs) Does that make sense? If, If we don't have a lively, deep fellowship with one another, and we're sharing life together, we're eating together, we're celebrating together, we're going out and doing things together, then you're not going to notice it. If we say, oh, you're living and you're a drunkard, we need to confront you with that, so we're going to you know, withdraw our, our fellowship from you. If the body life is weak, who's going to notice? Right? So, when someone is living in this type of open sin, hopefully they will notice when we, Withdraw. And we don't just do it quietly and not tell them what we're doing. We say, Listen, as long as you are using alcohol and the way you are, I'm sorry, but I can't I can't eat with we can't get together. It's no more business as usual if you're going to continue in this sin because it's hurting you, it's hurting your family, and it's also leaven within the church itself. We have to continually be cleaning house. It's not enough simply to be justified by the grace of God through Christ's sacrifice. We also must participate in the progressive sanctification of the church as we say no to sin, as we grow, as we pursue holiness before the Lord. So the goal of shunning is to lovingly help our fellow believers repent of their actual sins. And this is not something that we use on the basis of our, uh, on baseless accusations. I've been in churches where somebody will uh, take an offense at somebody and they go looking for something to hit them with, you know, something to hurt them with, and they'll make baseless accusations. And we live in a world that has bought into the idea that where there's smoke, there's fire. So if you get accused of something, then that means you're probably guilty of it to some degree. That is not true because that would mean that so many of the great saints of the past were, were uh, horrible sinners that, uh, you know, were living in sin. No, that w- those were baseless accusations. So disfellowshipping is not a way of enforcing your baseless accusation. It's only when there's a, a, an agreement within the body of Christ that this person is living in an open sin. It's not a way to punish people. It's a way to motivate people to see their sin and repent of it and come back into that rich and wholesome fellowship that they had before. So this is the proper use of the uh, word uh, for shunning in the church. Church history there is a proper way to practice shunning and there's an improper way to practice shunning and so we want to stay within the guidelines that Paul has set down. Now Paul reiterates that he is referring to fellowship uh, to fellow Christians who sin not to the unbelievers and so we see in chapter 5 verse 12 what do what have I to do with judging those who are outside do you not judge those who are inside but those who are outside God judges therefore put away from yourselves the evil person. So we must act as the immune system of our local church. And this is what I was referring to earlier when I said this may be a little bit simplistic, but it is still a very real thing in our physical body. We have an immune system. and If you kids look up at the screen you'll see our immune system in action. Okay, do you see that? What is that? Is that a bunch of balloons? No, those are red blood cells, those are little, you know, disc-shaped cells. That's what carries the oxygen to your body, and without those red blood cells, you, you would die. But the white cells, those are a part of your immune system, and they have this amazing ability to recognize any germ that doesn't belong in your blood. And it will those little white cells will gather around that germ and totally suffocate it they'll just mash themselves up against it and and just absorb that germ into the white blood cells and then it's gone now sometimes a germ will come into your your system that your white blood cells have never seen before, and so they won't necessarily attack it until they begin to realize, no, this is an invader. We need to attack it. And so all of a sudden your white blood cells kind of share that knowledge with one another and they all begin to go after this germ that they didn't recognize before. If this is not amazing to you, nothing would be. You are, a ba- you are able to live in a world that's filled with germs and yet you've got a, an immune system that can attack those germs whenever they show up in the wrong place. Now, they, you know, so many moms in my generation tried to protect their kids from germs. They wouldn't let them play in a sandbox. They wouldn't let them, you know, go out and dig in the dirt. And they thought they were doing their kids a favor. It turns out, no, those were the ways in which a child's immune system gets strengthened. Now, we're not saying go, you know, have your kids walk through the dog park and, you know, roll around or anything. But we are saying if you keep your kids from any exposure to germs, they just end up with a weaker immune system. <clears throat> we, we serve a wonderful God and, and he has made us in a wonderful way. And so we must act as members of the church as part of the immune system of our local church. Now this doesn't mean you're tattling on people and trying to, you know, get people into trouble. But if you notice, if you find out by whatever means that somebody's living in an adulterous relationship, cheating on their husband or their wife, or that they're involved in any other kind of sexual immorality, you have a responsibility to confront them. You're like a white blood cell in the body of Christ, and your first response is to come up close and recognize, is this is this leaven in the church? Is this sin in the church and you're to deal with that as a faithful brother or sister in Christ. We cannot stop having contact with people who are outside the in the world, but we can deal with those who are in the body of Christ. God will deal with the outsiders and he will either save them by the blood of Christ or he will judge them for their sins. But by putting away the quote evil person, that means a harmful person that is harming the body of Christ. We may restore that person to fellowship and at the same time protect the body of Christ from infection uh, by sexual immorality or any of these other gross sins that Paul has described. The local church is well able to hold court against those who need to be prosecuted and confronted. And so we see in Matthew 19 and verse 28, so Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you, speaking to his disciples, who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We are headed for a future in which we have tremendous responsibility and therefore tremendous authority. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse 1, which we'll deal with, Uh, next week. Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous, that's the people in the world, and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? So as Christians, we are being prepared by God to step into roles of tremendous responsibility in the life to come and therefore to have tremendous authority. We are co-reigning with Christ, our, our head, our husband. And so evidently Christians will one day exercise tremendous authority to judge the world as co-rulers with Christ. So Paul is saying you can do this. You're being prepared to do this in eternity and you're going to have to do it occasionally here uh, in this life. There will be times when a brother refuses to respond with repentance and so in Matthew 18 Jesus continues moreover if your brother sins against you and go and tell him of his fault between you and him alone that's the white blood cell coming up close right i notice you you know you're drinking a lot i notice you're looking at this person in ways that are not appropriate i notice that you know you've got an attitude here uh you're sowing division and discord in the church so we come up close and we talk to them as, as an individual one to one and if he hears you you have gained your brother but if he will not hear you take with you one or two more get a, a couple more white blood cells come up close have a conversation say do you see what you're doing can you see how this is wrong now we are not talking about a, just a simple disagreement or you didn't uh, you know you didn't acknowledge uh, my importance and I'm offended that we're not that's not what we're talking about here we're talking about gross sin in the church he says so you do this that by the mouth of two or more witnesses every word may be established so these witnesses are going to observe uh, the conversation and uh, they may uh, make a judgment at that point that this is not an issue that needs to be confronted that the person doing the initial confronting is stepping out of line. But if they agree that this is an appropriate action that needs to be taken, and the individual still will not listen, and if he, if he refuses to hear them, this you know, group of three or so, tell it to the church. That's the, that's the larger body of Christ. That's the, the congregation uh, of the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, then let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now some folks read that last part and say that means you just despise them, you snub them in public, you know, you throw rocks at them as they walk down the street. No! How do you respond to other heathen in the community? People who are maybe involved in industries or offices that you don't approve of. How do you respond to them as a Christian? Well, the answer is you lead them to Christ. Treating someone as a heathen and a tax collector does not mean continuing to shun them, but rather to seek to win them, as you would anyone who's not yet saved. And so, such people should be targets for our evangelism rather than targets for our uh, ostracism and and hatred. So, we are all responsible to help the to keep sin out of our church, okay? Every one of you is a potential white blood cell, okay? Every one of you is a potential person who needs to be approached by the white blood cells. And we need to be able to acknowledge that we may need that someday. We may need to have a brother or sister come to us and say, listen, if you keep going down the path you're going, you're going to lose your marriage. If you keep going down the path you're going, you're going to find yourself in, in a real financial problems. You know, your covetousness is starting to uh, cause you to be very uh, careless with the way you spend your money. You know, if you really love one another, you're not just going to watch them walk off a cliff. And you don't want others to watch you walk off any cliffs either. So we're all responsible. And Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3 makes this clear. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you. It shouldn't even be coming up. As is fitting for saints. Those are set aside for God's glory. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. So Paul is setting it up here to say, here's what we want, here's what we don't want. And then he says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. That's God's word to us. When we find ourselves noticing the unfruitful works of darkness, people in the church living in secret sin, even if that's a minister, even if it's a pastor, whoever it may be, if someone is living in in the evil, unfruitful works of darkness, our responsibility is to bring it to light. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. So sins are like disease germs, uh, many of which are eliminated simply by being exposed to the light. We turn up the lights, we end up with the sin just kind of burning away. It doesn't take much exposure to get somebody to feel the, the uh, shame of what they are doing. And so, in 1 John 1, verse seven, we read, but if we walk in the light, as he, that's Jesus, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There we have both the Passover lamb of Jesus and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, of progressive sanctification, cleaning house, getting sin out of the church. So we welcome fellow believers to draw attention to our own sins, as well as being willing, and it will take courage, to confront others about what we notice and believe to be sin in their lives. And so, again, I plead with you, as a minister of the gospel, as a preacher and teacher of God's word, first of all, always examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, Paul writes. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? I want to confront all of you with the question, do you love Jesus? Children, I want you to look up at me. Do you love Jesus? Not just do you know about him. Do you realize what he'd done for you? He died for you. And he died in order that you might be forgiven for your sins. Do you appreciate that? Do you see any evidence in your life that Jesus has saved you, that he's allowed you to be born again, and that you're a believer and the most important thing in your life is that you know God and God knows you? Examine yourself. Are you in the faith? That's what we're all here for this morning. And if you can't say yes to that with any confidence, then if you're young, I want you to talk to your mom and dad about it. And say, I want to be a Christian. I want to know Jesus. I want to love Jesus the way he deserves to be loved. So then you can talk with your parents and you can pray with them. If you'd like to pray with the elders, we're going to be standing right over here on the side. We would be so happy to pray with you and, and ask God to do a wonderful work in your heart. But that's the most important thing. Are you saved Are you a believer or are you just somebody who knows about it because you're sitting here in church every week? So, secondly, Ephesians 5.11, And have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. If you're a member of this church, a member of the body of Christ, then be part of the immune system of our local church. Pursue holiness together with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. And if you'll do that, we will be a stronger church. We will be a growing church. And I do wanna remind you again, if we don't have enough really deep and meaningful fellowship with one another, uh, then we won't even be able to notice when that fellowship is withdrawn. So let's make sure we have a really vital body life and that we are able to shine as lights in the midst of the darkness of this world and also to be an example to other churches of what it looks like to be a local church that truly loves one another and lives with one another in a day-to-day way. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, for the fellowship that we have with one another may we go deeper maybe it become even more meaningful may we work together to clean house and to keep sin from coming into the the lump of dough that we are as a local church help us to be that unleavened lump of dough that Paul describes and we give you all the praise we give you all the glory in Jesus name amen